Now, I'm pleased to introduce our speaker, an award-winning novelist, historian, and documentary filmmaker. Elizabeth Cobbs is the author of eight books, including the New York Times best-selling novel, The Hamilton Affair, The Hello Girls, America's First Women Soldiers. She earned her PhD in American history at Stanford University. She holds the Melbourne Glasscock Chair at Texas A&M University and is a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institute. Immediately following this talk, we are all invited to join Theo Tyson, the Polly Thayer Star Fellow in American Art and Culture, for a special conversation in the print study room on the second floor. This curator's choice presentation will look closely at special collection materials, including a signed copy of the Emancipation Proclamation, and consider them in context of their turbulent times. Now to the subject at hand, a book written by a trained academic historian who also uses fiction to explore and illuminate the past. The Tubman Command tells the story of Harriet Tubman at the height of her powers when she devises the largest plantation raid of the Civil War. Hunted by Confederates, revered by people who are enslaved, Tubman plots an expedition behind enemy lines to liberate hundreds of people and recruit them as soldiers. Please join me in welcoming Elizabeth Cobbs. Thank you so much. I just can't tell you what a pleasure and honor it is to be here uh, in celebration of Juneteenth. And Juneteenth is the day where we celebrate the moment in which the last group of Americans who were enslaved by other Americans were set free. And that was on Juneteenth, on June 19th, 1865, when finally the last Union ship gets to Galveston, Texas. So this is a very momentous day, I think, for us as Americans. And I can think of no better place to celebrate it because every one of you who walked in the door today walked in Harriet Tubman's footsteps. Harriet Tubman lived on North Beacon Hill. It was from there that she practiced her spy craft right before the American Civil War, that she met with uh, Boston women to encourage them to become, to step into the public sphere, to, to take up the most important cause of, of American history, perhaps, which was this fight to make America what it was always hoped to be, meant to be, which was the land of the free. So, you know, we walked down the same streets that Harriet Tubman walked down. So thank you for walking that street today. Thank you so much for joining me for what I feel is such a momentous occasion. So, all right, so uh, what I want to do today is tell you about my novel, and you might even say, why a novel? Many people have said, why a novel? Why fictionalize Harriet Tubman? Isn't it dramatic enough? Um, so I want to tell you about that, why I think novels can be particularly useful uh, in illuminating lives that we want to know more about. Um, and also I'd like to tell you about a historical mystery. Because uh, part of what historians do, and I am a professional historian, which means I teach and I write nonfiction books, but I also write fiction. And part of what we're always trying to do is figure out puzzles. So, let us begin. It was a dark and almost stormy night. <laughs> the stormy night came two days later, actually. So there was a stormy night, though not at the beginning. And on that almost stormy night, there were three Union gunships 
aimed at the South Carolina coast. And their mission was to creep up a river that had been guarded by artillery, on which there were Confederate sentinels posted every few miles, where there were underwater mines set to blow up ships, and there were alligators to <laughs> pick off those who might have fallen in. And they're all creeping up this river, wondering if they're going to be able to pull off one of the most stunning raids of the American Civil War. And the question is, the mystery is, who was guiding them? Was anybody guiding them? Because in the official records of the War of the Rebellion, it will not tell us who was guiding them. But we think, in fact, and believe that there is enough historical evidence to show, quite conclusively, that it was this woman at about this age. Now I realize probably many of you have seen pictures of Harriet Tubman. Maybe you can imagine you might have seen something over the years. And, uh, and she usually looks stodgier than this. <laughs> you know, she looks, you know, she's an older middle-aged woman or sometimes even a very old woman. Um, but this has recently been found, uh, discovered, which is a picture of Harriet Tubman at about the age she would have been at this time. So my mission, uh, my mission is to tell you about that mission up the, what's called the Cumbie River. I'm pronouncing it as they would in South Carolina, by the way. If you saw it on a piece of paper, you might think it said Cumbahi. Just go to South Carolina and they will set you straight on this, <laughs> as they did me. Um, and so what I wanted to do is I, I did a lot of research on the topic, and I, I could have, of course, proceeded as a traditional historian would and keep it all in nonfiction. But the problem often when we write uh, in, in history is that not every life is equally well documented. First of all, if you are illiterate, you're not going to document anything almost yourself. And Harriet Tubman never learned to read. So she wasn't like Alexander Hamilton, about whom I wrote previously, who wrote tons, you know, volumes upon volumes of, of papers. The other problem, too, is that when it comes to women in history particularly, contemporaries often don't pick that person out as maybe somebody who's going to be important because they're not writing about themselves and no one else is really, or not very many people anyway, are writing about them either. And one consequence of this is that there are many dark corners of their lives, right? We have certain key points, we know those points, but we don't necessarily know what happened in between. And so history, I like to say, I mean fiction rather, lights the dark corners of the evidence and helps us really see people in a fuller way. The other problem, too, is that even when we do have evidence, especially about, about certain people, and I think women fall especially into this uh, category, and also people of color, we tend to disbelieve what we have. If it's scanty, well, then that probably did happen. I know this probably because of the last book I wrote, and i show you this briefly. These are women who served as America's first women soldiers and served in France, some under bombardment, and connected 26 million calls for the American army during the height of the battle of, Civil, uh, of World War I, and afterwards the army forgot that they were soldiers. And they said, oh, yeah, we think that probably, that's not true. Now, these were women who wore dog tags and uniforms and were subject to court-martial and served in an incredibly important communications role in World War I, and it was completely forgotten. And part of this is what psychiatrists, psychologists call selective perception. We perceive the things that we think we need to. Our brains are doing this all the time. They're filtering all kinds of stuff we don't need to know about. And so we think, well, if this is not very important, I'm not even going to pay attention to it. I'm not going to recognize it as for what it was. 
And so sometimes it's not malicious, it's just people think that someone's not particularly important. And so for this reason, partly because we tend to disbelieve the evidence we do have, um, we tend not to have evidence that we'd like to have, I think that there's very great value in using fiction at times to bring to life certain characters who otherwise we may not identify with as deeply as we should, as deeply as we should, especially as Americans today. So a quick mini history lesson here about Civil War, because I want to tell you about Harriet Tubman's going to serve in the American Civil War as she did, for which she was awarded a military pension um, and in, April, in the early part of 1862. And that was right, not, not long after anyway. The bombard, this war, of course, starts with the bombardment of Fort Sumter in April of 1861. Okay, getting everybody on the same page here, right? So we all remember April 1861. And it happens because the, the Confederates say to the federal government, you have to evacuate this fort. It now belongs to the Confederacy, which is a separate government. Of course, the Union under Abraham Lincoln resists. Um, the bombardment follows, and after that, the Confederates raise their flag, which you, of course, see here above Fort Sumter, which gradually is reduced to rubble in the course of the war. This starts the war, and one of the critical things about the war to know is that one of the very first things that Lincoln does, which establishes it as a, as a war, which is to create a blockade of the southern coastline. Because how are you going to keep the South from otherwise getting supplied by the whole rest of the world. One thing to know about the Confederacy, which you may not, I didn't know it until I wrote another book, <laughs> and I was like, then you start borrowing from other books, you know, things you learned. Uh, the Confederacy was bigger than all of Europe. The 11 states of the Confederacy were bigger than Western Europe. So from a Western European point of view, they're thinking, well, this is not going to happen. The, the Union can't keep possibly keep this big a territory you know, next to it if they don't want it. And so one of the things that the Europeans did, therefore, was to start selling supplies to both sides, as people do in war, you know, there's money to be made. They're not making judgments. They're just sending over uniforms and guns and ammunition. So what Lincoln does is establish what's called the Anaconda Plan, for which you see this um, slide showing the Anaconda trying to surround the South. Now, to be able to do this, however, they do need some naval bases. Because that, as you can tell, is a really long coastline. So another early action in the American Civil War, after it became clear this thing wasn't going to blow over, was to find spots on the Carolina coastline, the Sea Islands of, of the Carolinas, where they could have a naval base in order to enforce this blockade to keep the rest of the world from supplying the Confederacy. Now, by the way, the rest of the world did a pretty good job. Because otherwise, how does the Confederacy last for four years? They don't have a manufacturing basis. They don't have, you know, extensive manu you know, supplies, natural resources. You know, they're trying to basically feed themselves. So what the Union does is that they launch an attack on Port Royal. Now, Port Royal is the, the big town on what's called, um, I'm sorry, Beaufort's the town on Port Royal Island, which is right next to Hilton Head Island, so those two major islands down there in the south. And they, they la launch an attack, and in one day, November in 1861, they capture Port Royal. Now, they capture Port Royal in, a, in one day, and then they're marooned there for four years. Because, <laughs> of course, it takes a long time, and nobody knows for a long time who will win this war. They really do not. And, in fact, things do not look good. Charles Francis Adams, you know him, being from, being from Boston, you know, wrote in his diary, we don't, we're, we don't think we're going to win this war. Henry Adams did not think that the North would prevail. 
So they launch an attack, they send Marines ashore. Here you see the American flag being run up the beaches of Port Royal Island. Now, often when we talk about the war, we talk about the North versus the South, and that's kind of fair enough, but I also don't really like that terminology because we have to remember that the South is not all white, right? There are a lot of people in the South who are not rooting for the Confederacy. So we have to always remember that there are Northerners and Southerners on both sides of this, um, of this war for the, for what is going to be the meaning of America. And by the way, a good example of this, um, on that very day, one of the men who was one of the Union captains, uh, trying to capture Port Royal Island was a man named Percival Drayton. Now, Percival Drayton was a native Charlestonian, so he's from Charleston, uh, and he was attacking his homeland. On shore was his brother, General Thomas Drayton, who was in charge of the defenses of Port Royal. So one of the many very clear examples of this brother against brother for, for the soul of the entire country. Well, one of the things that happens, I know you're thinking, where does Harriet Tubman come in? She does very soon. Be, be, hold with me, we're, we're almost there. Uh, one of the things that happens is that when they attack Port Royal Island and Hilton Head and get this whole group of Sea Islands is that they accidentally liberate 10,000 people in this one day. Now I say accidental because, you know, the Union had, there was no Emancipation Proclamation yet. The Union wasn't sure altogether why they were fighting the war. You know, there was a lot of debate on that. Now, by the way, the South always knew why it was fighting the war. If you ever have any wonder about that, go back and look at the declarations of secession. They say again and again, this is to defend slavery. So don't let anybody confuse you as to what the war was about. You know, it was always about slavery. But for the North, it wasn't yet clear what they were going to do. And so they named these people actually contraband. They didn't free them, sort of. They sort of did, sort of didn't. They called them contraband because at that time in, in military warfare, naval warfare, if you capture an enemy's supplies, things that the enemy is going to use to maybe kill you, right, in some way, guns or, you know, you know, things you'll use to build ships and that kind of thing. You can seize it legally because it's contraband. It's something that's going to be used against you by your enemy to prosecute a war. In this case, they called the human beings contraband because they said these people will grow food for the Confederacy, and therefore that's what we're going to call them initially. Now, not everybody felt that way, and here's a man who did not, General David Hunter. General David Hunter was the man who was put in charge of the military operations of what was called the Department of the South. And so it was he who was in charge of, you know, using these islands not only to create a uh, place for the blockading squadron of naval ships, but also, perhaps, as a place from which to launch other attacks on the South. There was always that hope that they could do more, that they could take back Charleston, which was, of course, the seat of the rebellion, which was the heart of the rebellion. It was South Carolina that pulled away first from the Union. It was South Carolina that was so viciously devoted to the institution of slavery. So David Hunter wanted to free them right away, and Lincoln said, no, 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 you can't do that. He also wanted to enlist men, black men, as soldiers, and initially Lincoln was like, no, 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 you can't do that. Finally, he, uh, David Hunter was given special permission to raise the first official regiments of colored troops, what came to be known as the U.S. Colored Troops. Now, it wasn't as easy as you might think that sounds, because for some of these colored men on these islands, they really weren't quite sure what it would it mean to be a U.S. colored troop, and also how serious was the Union about giving them their freedom? Because, you know, Lincoln, it, it would be a while before, the, before Lincoln and before the Union ever said, this is what we're really going to do here. 
So it, it took some effort to get them recruited. So that was one challenge. You know, how could you use the islands to attack the mainland? How could you convince black men to sign up? Now, many, by the way, were eager, including the men who came to uh, comprise what was known as the first South Carolina volunteers. This shows them on the other great day, other than June 18th, Juneteenth, I'm sorry, June 19th, um, which was, of course, uh, January 1st, 1863, which was the implementation of the Emancipation Proclamation. By the way, I do not know why that's not a national holiday. I mean, it's great that it's New Year's, but it's everybody's New Year, right? This is, should be an American holiday, holiday, in my personal opinion. Anyway, so you, you see the men there on that day celebrating that, that great momentous event. You also see the men, that of course was a picture from um, an engraving from Harper's, but this is a picture actually of the first South Carolina volunteers, led by the way, by a man born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, whose picture I'll show you in a minute. Now this, I know, at last, brings us to Harriet Tubman. Now, <laughs> Harriet Tubman initially went down and she, was, she wasn't a part of this group, but she, there were a group of northern volunteers, many from uh, this area, from New England and also from the middle states, who went down to assist with this group of contraband. 10,000 people. The Army didn't have time to think about them very much. The Army is trying to do what the Army does. So they, missionaries went down to help them. One person who went down was Harriet Tubman. And Harriet Tubman went down with some pretty special skills, which were very rare skills for her time, for anybody's time. First of all, she was adept at going behind enemy lines. She'd been doing it for 11 years on the Underground Railroad. And for black people, you know, the Mason-Dixon line was the enemy line and had been. So she had a kind of experience of doing that and getting away with it that nobody else had. The other thing is that, now this is the odd, other oddity, she was a leader of men. Now, that's a very unusual position for a woman even today. You know, if you think that women are about 15% of the, of the United States Armed Forces, for one of them to have, well, we haven't ever had a defense secretary who was female, but whatever, joint chiefs of staff, don't get me started. But the point is that she had had at least some experience of uh, in tight situations leading women and children and also men um, and getting them to follow her when they needed to. So she had certain skills. She'd somehow figured that out. She'd figured out how to do that. And that's one thing that actually drew me to Harriet Tubman. I was thinking, how does a woman in that period of time in any period of time, really, get to be a leader, what does that do for her as a human being? What does she have to do in the way of suppressing her femininity, um, you know, making sure nobody, making sure that people don't balk because of her gender, not to mention her race, um, but her race comes up later in relation to white officers. So a lot of the mystery of my book, and that's one reason it makes it a novel, is how does she do it? You know, what's going on in her brain as she's talking to men? How does she get them to listen to her? She's five feet tall, by the way. I go like this, that's shorter than five feet, but it's not a lot because I'm five, five about. So she's just a tiny little thing. And as you know from that picture I just showed you, you know, a good stout wind might blow her away. So how does she command the respect she does? Now, by the way, she goes down there because of this man, John Andrew, who was one of your governors. John Andrew, governor of Massachusetts, sent Harriet Tubman. Now, as I said, historians have, don't have as much evidence as we would normally like to have 
to write a full account of a military event, in this case, the Cumbie River Raid. We just don't. Now, by the way, the commander, the official military commander of the raid, wrote one paragraph on it. So, by the way, he doesn't mention anybody by name except for two of his captains. Right? He's not, you wouldn't expect that. As a historian, you don't go, oh, I guess Harriet Tubman wasn't there then. No, you go, I guess the 300 men who went along with him were all there, as well as the person who we have eyewitness testimony was there, as well as personal testimony in the case of Harriet Tubman. Anyway, what we do know is that John Andrews sent her south because she was, as he said to David Hunter, a very valuable woman. Now, nobody other than my husband has ever called me a very valuable woman. So I think when a governor does this, it's for a reason. Now, by the way, Harriet Tubman was a nurse in the war. She was a laundress in the war. But I don't think that a governor would send anybody to a general of the U.S. Army because she was really good at washing clothes or taking temperatures or administering poultices or, you know, all the things that she did do. She went because of these other characteristics that she had. Now, by the way, you might also ask yourself, well, why didn't everybody go? And did everybody go? Did all the abolitionists go south? The answer is no. You know, some did, someone in military roles, but some like Frederick Douglass, about her own age, by the way. We don't know her exact age because, like many people who were enslaved, their birthdays were never recorded, never had a birthday party, <laughs> and never knew what day, sometimes even what year they were born. So Douglas was, we think, a few years older than Harriet Tubman, not much. Of course, they knew each other very well. and said he did like most people did in that age group, which is to send their sons. Uh, this is uh, Sergeant Major Lewis Douglas, uh, who was served with the 54th Massachusetts, your very famous regiment from here in Boston. So he was one of the many men, uh, you know, younger people who went south. So I want to talk a few minutes just about Harriet Tubman's character, which, again, was part of what I was so interested in exploring, and I think... It's hard when you're a professional historian, and by the way, if you're a scholar, you know, you're not allowed to make up a single fact, right? You know, you can't make up, you know, anything. A day of the week, you can't, a cloud in the sky, and that's because for scholarship, we need to be really sure that nothing ever will be made up so that we have something firm to stand on. Well, when you do fiction, you can't follow all that. Because <laughs> so what you do as a scholar is you take all those things, fixed points, but you make up the stuff that happens in between. Were you having a bad hair day? I mean, was Harriet Tubman wrestling with her hair that day? You know, did her dress rip? Did she, did some man, you know, look at her in a way that made her uncomfortable? You know, was she frightened? Did she have regrets about something she did earlier in her life? All the things that make her human, who make, that make her having an experience. So let's talk a little about her character. This is actually the fairly recently discovered runaway notice of Harriet Tubman. Now, you'll see, if you can see, see well enough, and I'm looking right close, so good for me and bad for you, <laughs> it says in the middle, Minty, because that was her birth name. She later changed it. She took her mother's name, Harriet, later, a little bit later. Um, and so she was called Minty, and she says she's chestnut color, fine-looking, and about five feet tall. Now, by the way, the fine-looking part was also part of my narrative. You don't in a, in a, it's like a police bulletin. You don't say fine-looking because you're trying to give someone a compliment. It's not like, you look great today. No, it's like I'm looking out on a crowd of people and I'm looking for my suspect and they've described this person as fine-looking. I'm going to home in right on one person, right, or two people, and that's the person I'm going to be looking for. 
So she was, uh, she, now by the way, you notice that she's older than the other people who were escaping that day, a, a, man named, a man who was 25, another 19. Those were her brothers. This was her first escape attempt. Her brothers got scared, and they went back. Now this was the only time that Harriet Tubman ever turned around on a mission, and she learned from that. Later in life, she carried a pistol with her, and she said the pistol was to let the people who were with her know that she would, if necessary, use this on them, which sounds hard-hearted. And yet, as we know, in a military situation, those are the people who are going to get you killed and get other innocent people killed. So she learned a lot from those first escapes. And of course, she's famous for us because of the Underground Railroad. This is a frontispiece from a, um, uh, uh, a version of Uncle Tom's Cabin showing Eliza jumping off, jumping across the ice, trying to get away from uh, do dogs and men who are pursuing her. And so she was a part of this abolitionist movement to get people to freedom. And she did that for 11 years. And I think that basically I have now covered about what mo most people know about Harriet Tubman, which is what you can put on the back of a cocktail napkin. My goal, my mission as a historian, is to keep people a lot more and to bring it to them through fiction because I think we often remember fiction better. It's like a song, right? You remember a story you heard as a story often, and you remember it often better than you remember a list of facts. Trust me, I teach undergraduates. <laughs> so there's a reason sometimes to use fiction. So she was, of course, uh, famous, I should say infamous, depending on who you were for this. One of the people who were her good uh, friends, somebody she knew well here in Boston, was Thomas Wentworth Higginson. He's also famous, by the way, as the editor of Emily Dickens for Dickinson's first collection of poems. So he's a man of letters in, in um, New England and the leader of the first South Carolina uh, volunteers. So he was the first white officer who went south to lead... Um, to lead black men into battle. Now, by the way, he was one of the people who gives us a sense, gave us a sense of Harriet Tubman's extraordinary courage. Um, as he said in a letter to his mother in the 1850s, and he was talking about being here in Boston, and she, as I said, she lived on North Beacon Hill and right around the block. He said, we have had the greatest heroine of the age here. Harriet Tubman, a black woman and a fugitive slave. She has a reward of $12,000 offered for her in Maryland and will probably be burned alive whenever she is caught. Now, how did she get that extraordinary courage? Some people have um, speculated that it might have actually been due to a physical injury um, Harriet Tubman sustained as a child. You probably, you may not know, some of you won't, certainly, that she was a disabled person. She was disabled most of her life. At age 12, she went into this store in Maryland to get some provision that she was asked to go get. Uh, when inside, a boy suddenly ran in behind her, pursued by an overseer. He was calling for the people in the store to you know, capture that boy, hold that boy down you know, so he could punish this child. Uh, and Harriet Tubman stood up to the man and to protect the boy, the boy ran out the, out the store door and the man picked up from this uh, counter here a make weight. That's like a piece of iron that you use in a scales to figure out how much something weighs in, in those days. And he picked up mad as heck and chucked it at this boy and hit this girl instead in the head and broke her skull. And Harriet Tubman ever after that had what we today assume is a form of temporal lobe epilepsy, which meant that she could lose consciousness without warning at any time and frequently did. So we've all heard about people who come out of wartime disabled. We know of, we may know, we may be disabled veterans. Who goes into the army disabled? 
undertake such perilous assignments, knowing that they, in a way, can't even rely upon their own brain you know, at all times, and yet convinces men to follow her. So her, her duties when she was down there, she had a numerous duties. Um, and part of, again, part of what was happening in this period of time in the Sea Islands is that people were coming, the slave was leaking enslaved people. One of the persons who tells us about this in her memoir is Susie King Taylor, who was a nurse with the first South Carolina volunteers under Thomas Wentworth Higginson, who actually arranged for the publication of her memoir. I think it was actually here in Massachusetts in the early, early 20th century. So it's a wonderful memoir if you haven't read it, I recommend it. And she talks about um, people so close. The Sea Islands, by the way, if you've never been there, like you don't even know you're on an island most of the time because the waterways between them are so narrow that you just keep going over these bridges over marshes and suddenly someone will tell you, didn't you notice you're on an island? So it was very close by. And the result of this is that sometimes slaves could break away and could get onto the, uh, into the area that was occupied by the Union Army. And one of the things that first needed to happen was to interrogate these people to find out what they knew. Now, one person who was particularly aware of this was Robert E. Lee. And Robert E. Lee said in uh, May of 1863, the same month that Harriet Tubman was planning this raid, he said, we know that the, and I'm paraphrasing now, he said the, the greatest source of intelligence to the enemy is, of course, our Negroes. Now, by the way, I'm using the words he used, our Negroes, because at the time, that was the southern word often for slaves, a, a, a gentleman would not talk about his slaves. He would talk about my Negroes. So when James Baldwin said, I'm not your Negro, you know, it had a lot of resonance to it. And the reason why they needed this military intelligence was for all the usual reasons why you do, and especially true in the South, because one of the problems were uh, the way that the South defended its the Confederacy, I should say, defended the coastal waterways was through underwater mines known as torpedoes. Now you're, now you're thinking, oh wait, torpedo, I thought that was like a World War II thing. Well, the word actually goes back to the Civil War and they were stationary underwater mines. Here's an actual one to give you a sense of this. Um, and so, for example, you might have heard the famous phrase by Admiral Farragut where he says, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. That was in the Civil War. That wasn't, that wasn't World War II. And that was after he saw the ship in front of him blown up and sunk, these wooden ships in a matter of moments. So they needed people to figure out where the torpedoes were. And this brings us to Harriet Tubman. Because Harriet Tubman, um, in her military pension records, you know, swears her oath that she was a commander of, I think she said, seven to eight scouts. She lists the men by name. Uh, one of them, by the way, later applies for a pension. He doesn't mention Harriet Tubman. It's just one of those corroborating things that historians are always looking for. Who's on the same spot and what are they all saying about what happened? Um, so she talks about leading men uh, uh, on, you know, to get information from the South. Um, her commanding officers talk about her as a spy who went many times behind enemy lines. So on the morning of June 1st, 1863, Union ships like this one, this is not an actual picture of the Union ships that we have, we just don't have those um, particular ones, pictures of them, but they would be very similar to this. Steamers, in fact, in, the, in this case, they were ferries, repurposed ferries from the north, sent south in order to patrol southern waters. Uh, and they went up the Cumbie River, and as they crept up this river, hoping, hoping that they were not going to be sunk, they had to know certain things. Now, again, historians can't tell you that there were scouts who found out anything. Yet somehow, 
they knew that artillery had been taken down at the mouth of the river. And somehow they knew that the army of 2,000 veterans, Confederate veterans, veterans camped nearby, that they weren't really prepared for this. They had this sense that they could outwit them. Somebody must have known that the, the, the actual fort outposts had been brought down in numbers of men because of the change of the season and malaria being very rampant. And somebody put this all together and ran it up the stage, you know, the levels of command and convinced, convinced these commanders to stage a raid. Now, by the way, in a context in which, I should say, the month before they had tried to have another raid on Charleston, and something like nine ships were disabled. Uh, they had to scuttle one altogether. Underwater torpedoes prevented an assault. So, you know, it wasn't a light thing. And in fact, one of the ships like this that went up the St. John's River in Florida the next year was blown up in a matter of instant, in an instant by Confederate torpedoes. So Confederate torpedoes, it wasn't, you wouldn't just go, I think we should go up the Cumbie today. Why not? Right? No, you would have to have military intelligence but we have no documentation of it, other than a couple of things. Now what they saw that morning when the dawn finally broke was they saw people like this working in the rice fields. And rice was an incredibly important crop for the South. Not only was it a very profitable cot, I mean, um, crop, like cotton, and the Sea Islands cotton was particularly well-renowned for its silkiness, but the rice crop was important for feeding Confederate troops. So this really was a war-making thing. It wasn't just about profits. It was about creating enough food to keep the Confederacy going. And these show you the way that rice fields work. They're flooded periodically, and people get around by, by canoe, and there are dikes and all of that, which you'd learn about when you read the book. Yes! <laughs> it was very fun for me to learn all about this stuff. And this is actually a picture from the era. Now, this is from Harper's Weekly, and it shows the morning, what happens on that morning. Three Union ships lead Beaufort, South Carolina. Two actually make it up the river. One goes aground, um, and so that's a, a hiccup, but, you know, they keep, they persist. They get up river. They free 756 people in one day. They burn four plantations to the ground, disable some others. They, they make this rice crop. Uh, that's a crop that's growing in the fields. They drown it. They lift the dikes. It's flooded with salt water. They, you know, the, the crop is ruined. Now, that's all important, but it's also the context in which it happens. This is the context. So look at this picture and look at the full page. This is a full page of Harper's Weekly, and it contains what's probably the most famous picture of American slavery. It's the picture of a man whose name is, was named Gordon, and it shows you his back to the, you know, to the photographer with his back scarred by, by whips and by terrible abuse. And it shows him to the far left when he straggles across Union lines wearing his slaves, slave clothes, you know, rags. And not only shows you now with it being examined by the Union doctor, but on the right, it shows him proudly clothed as a Union soldier. So what this raid is about is about this. And this is what the war is about, is helping men who come in looking like that with these kind of wounds become men, become defenders of the, our country, patriots for our, our country's mission, and defenders of their families. They are led, by the way, the official commander is Colonel James Montgomery. Uh, if you ever saw the movie Glory, he figures in that. He, he part of the 54th Massachusetts. His soldiers participate in that uh, assault on Fort Wagner, which was very famous. 
Now, by the way, one of the big differences is that the assault on Fort Wagner is famous partly because so many men die, and it's sort of like, oh, proof, guy, I guess these people want their freedom. I know that sounds crazy to us today, but that was what they felt they were proving, that men would die for the freedom of their families and for their own freedom. So Montgomery, he was chosen, and this gets us into the question of how do we know this was Harriet Tubman doing all of this? One of the things we know from Harriet Tubman's own autobiography, which was taken down for her by a New Englander, by the way, after the war, right after the war. And it's the only thorough account post-Civil War of the Cumbie River Raid. It's never contradicted in its own time. Nobody says Harriet Tubman was wrong. And in fact, the book is, has appendix after appendix from high-ranking men of the United States saying everything Harriet Tubman says is true. This woman could not tell a lie, you know, it, well, unless she was talking with her. Somebody who was trying to enslave somebody else, you know, but she, a very, very truthful person. Now, why do we know that he's so critical on this? We know it partly because what Harriet Tubman tells us in her testimony is that she told David Hunter she would not go. He wanted her to go along, to follow through on this plan, unless he appointed James Montgomery. Now, that's kind of odd, because Thomas Wentworth Higginson was actually her friend. She had known him much longer. But Wentworth Higginson was a man who shied from the tactics that actually come to define the war later, which is that we have to take this war home to the people of the South. We have to destroy civilian plantations that are supplying the war. And of course, this becomes a part of Sherman's controversial epic march to the sea later on. And James Montgomery was on board with that. And uh, Wentworth Higginson thought, no, oh, rules of war, we can't follow all that. She also liked Wen uh, uh, Montgomery because he had been such a close associate and actually ridden with John Brown. And it's hard for us today to appreciate fully what John Brown meant as a figure to people who had been enslaved. But here, and on the basis of skin color, here was a white man who was willing to die for that cause, who knew that this was the cause of all America, not certain populations within America. It was a cause of all Americans. And so this was something that was very meaningful to Tubman. In fact, it was John Brown who first dubbed her General Tubman. <laughs> so she knew him. So this brings us um, sort of to this moment of the raid. The raid happens, um, and part of the reason why I got very interested in it was because of a speech she gave at the end of the raid, uh, where it talked, where she talked about, you know, what the raid was about. And I'm going to give you a snippet from that in a minute. Um, and it was after the war, and this shows her after the war that she applied for her military pension. It took her 30 years to get it. Now, by the way, it took the women of World War I 60 years, so she was more efficient. No, she had more help, too. <laughs> and she was Harriet Tubman. But um, as I said, many people swore to her usefulness and her service, her valor in the war. General Rufus Saxon, who was right under David Hunter, he said Tubman was a spy who made many a raid inside the enemy's lines and was invaluable as a scout. Some historians have said, well, we don't have any proof that she went behind the enemy lines, so... So why, are we, why do we think she is? Uh, and I'm thinking, why would you disbelieve Rufus Saxon? Why would you think a general of the US Army would make something up after the war? So she ultimately does get her military pension, but it's much, much later. Uh, by the way, she's given the pension of a nurse. One of the men whom she names as one of her scouts gets the pension of a scout, which is more than twice the amount given to any nurse. She is buried with military honors in Auburn, New York, which is one of the many places I went to research the book, of course, where she was born, Cambridge, Maryland, as well as Beaufort, South Carolina, and other locations. So I, I, just to, re, to reiterate, what is our evidence that Harriet Tubman deserves to be known as 
the most singular, most outstanding female patriot in American history, who served under perilous circumstances longer than anyone we know, with consequences greater than any other in terms of defining modern America. And it's, of course, it's the testimony from her own autobiography, from the officers that she served with and under, from the testimony in his own pension of Walter Plowd and one of the men I was telling you about, um, and there are sort of a, a, a numerous, numerous reasons. But it's also because of the speech that she gave. In this, we believe, this church, which today looks a little different from, but is today is this is what it looks like. So they've modified the building, the um, Tabernacle Baptist Church in South Carolina in Beaufort. And a Wisconsin reporter who didn't know Harriet Tubman well enough to know her name. But after, the, after these people were freed, they were all brought ashore after a dark and stormy night. Swear to God, really. They all, this ship, ship's almost capsized. That's part of the story. That's part of the adventure. Not everybody gets out. I'm telling you that. So as you read, you don't know who gets out. Well, Harriet Tubman does, but other than her. And the Wisconsin reporter said that afterwards, that after they landed, they were all these people, newly enslaved, free for only a day, went to this church where, they, where the, the colonel gave them, of course, a recruitment speech to the men because he wants them to join the first or second South Carolina volunteers. But the Wisconsin reporter says the colonel was followed by a speech from the black woman who led the raid. So this is an eyewitness account. And under whose inspiration it was originated and conducted. For sound sense and real native eloquence, her address would do honor to any man, and it created quite a sensation. She is now called Moses, having inherited the name. So that's the story of Harriet Tubman at this age, when she was just a young woman, in her early, late 30s, early 40s. Of course, today there has been a campaign for quite a while to try to get her on the uh, $20 bill. Unfortunately, that took a, a U-turn last week when um, Secretary uh, of the Treasury Mnuchin announced that the Trump administration was indefinitely canceling that plan, maybe in 2028, if there's another president other than President Trump, it will be back on the bill. So we don't know, but I put this up here partly because I, I genuinely think, and this is, I have written eight books in American history. My specialty is not African-American history or women's history. It's actually the history of American foreign policy. So war, think war. Um, and so I've studied a lot of aspects of American history, and I, I do believe as a historian that it's very safe to conclude that this is the woman who, if we were to choose one, and actually she was chosen by popular vote, nobody asked me, which is great, <laughs> uh, that this is the person who should adorn as the only woman on our currency um, to represent all of the half of America. So I hope you, maybe you will support that and ask your, your senators and Congress people to support it. It's a bipartisan bill in Congress today. And of course, I hope you will read The Tubman Command. Thank you.